Good morning. Thank you for your attendance this morning. We want to especially thank any visitors that we have and welcome you back to, uh, to worship with us at any chance you get. Uh, we hope that you'll stick around and let's get to meet you a little bit after services are over. This lesson that we're going to be giving is continuing our series of going through the book of Acts, and we are looking at some of the um, important events that take place that, uh, that have a profound impact on early Christianity and that hopefully have a profound impact on us as well, Christianity 2,000 years later. The theme for this year is that we are sent, in that uh, today we're going to be looking at an example of somebody who was sent. God has always, always cared for and loved the entire world. Uh, what I mean by that is even in the Old Testament when you're reading about Israel, it is not as though God loves Israel and is unconcerned with everyone else. And sometimes, since we are reading the scriptures of Israel, the focus is going to be on Israel, and we can tend to walk away with perhaps that impression. Uh, or that only Israel were those with hope, or that God only loved Israel and everyone else was kind of on their own. But even from the initial call of Abraham, even all the way back there in Genesis chapter 12, when God does call him to be this special people, why does this people exist? Why is Abraham called? We're told that God called Abraham that through his seed, all the nations of the earth, all the families of the earth would be blessed. Even the call of Abraham itself was a divine mission on behalf of the whole world because God has always cared for and loved the whole world. In fact, the story of the Bible is about how a world that has constantly rejected its creator, constantly rejected the one who loved them, is going to be redeemed and won back by the one who created and loved the world. Like, for God so loved the world that he sent his only begotten son. That's not, God's love didn't just come out of nowhere once Jesus arrived on the scene. God's love has been around for an awful long time. If you read through Genesis up to the call of Abraham, you see that the world has constantly been turning against God, whether it's in the Garden of Eden or whether it's through the actions of Cain and Abel or whether it's you, you keep reading and you read about people named Lamech and you read about like the terrible things that have taken place even up to the, the flood where God, God calls Noah. And through Noah, wants to redeem the world back and start a new family. And you see that Noah's family continues to reject God, whether it's uh, right after the, the flood and with his children and or whether it's uh, the Tower of Babel where like evil culminates in this city where then people are spread about and evil and their sinful pride goes throughout the whole world with them. Then God calls Abraham. It's like he called Adam and Adam failed. He called uh, uh, Noah and it didn't take very long until sin entered through Noah again. And then he calls Abraham. And the first thing Abraham does after being called is he goes down to Egypt and he tells Pharaoh that, no, this is my sister, you take her. Uh, and, uh, and it's like, like sin ends up entering the story almost immediately every time God calls an, a new person. But what we'll find out is that God works through each of these sinful and flawed people to ultimately bring about his purposes. You read Genesis and you read about the story of Abraham and his family, whether we're talking about uh, Jacob and, you know, Isaac or Jacob and Esau or, or Joseph and his 12 brothers and all of that, you don't walk away thinking, oh, this is a bunch of good little moral tales about good people and how we should imitate them. It's like each one of these people that you read about <laughs> is seriously flawed. And, uh, and yet God works through these flawed people to bring about the salvation of many people. And that becomes 
a pattern that you'll see throughout the Bible. It becomes a pattern that ultimately culminates in Jesus, who through the sinful actions of man, by nailing him to a cross, ultimately brings about the salvation of the world. And so this whole story and all of these flawed people and all of the sin and all of this, it is not just about one people group who were so righteous that God loved them above anyone else or or anything like that. Rather, it's God working through sinful humanity to bring about salvation of sinful humanity. And you see this throughout the scriptures as well. Like you'll see, for example, we'll talk a little bit later about Jonah. Jonah was a prophet sent to Nineveh. Why is that? Apparently God cares about Nineveh. Apparently, God cares about the animals of Nineveh. By the time you get to the end of the book of Jonah, you see that. Like, God cares about his world that he created. God cares about every person in this world. God cares about every one of you. He cares about every person inside this building. But God also loves and cares for every person outside of this building. When you get to the Gospel of Luke, you start seeing these seeds being planted and these ideas that are coming to light again about how God's plans are bigger than just one nation or they are not bound by borders. These are plans that will stretch throughout the world. When you get to the book of Acts, you see these things starting to take root even more. You see, for example, all nations of the earth represented in this day in Acts chapter 2. You see this quotation from Joel that says, God will pour forth his spirit on all flesh. Peter, when he says, repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit, goes on to say, and the promises to you and to your children and to all who are afar off, as many as the Lord our God will call. This is not something that's for one particular time in people and location, but this is global. The story of the book of Acts is that the gospel goes global. Um, In fact, in Acts 1-8, Jesus, as he prepares his disciples for this, he says that you're going to be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea and Samaria, and then to the remotest parts of the world. Throughout the world, you're going to be going. You read Acts, and you begin to see these things happening. You begin to see the gospel spread, starting in Jerusalem, where thousands become Christians. And then you start seeing, even in Jerusalem, there are these hints. For example, you have two groups of widows. One of them is being fed. Those are the native Jerusalem Hebrew widows. But the other group is being neglected. Those are the Hellenistic or the Greek widows. And what the church is called to do is not have divisions like that any longer. And men are chosen to try to solve this so that you don't have certain people being excluded from the goodness of God and the generosity of the church. So even these Hellenistic widows are going to be treated as equal participants as the native uh, widows. Then you read a little bit further, and and one of those men who was chosen to help solve that problem ends up going to uh, Samaria, and like the hated Samaritans. Remember in the Gospel of Luke, Jesus uh, preaches about the, the good Samaritan? Well, even there, he's planting seeds. Maybe start changing the way you think about outsiders. Maybe start to change the way you think about Samaritans. In Acts, you see the church go to Samaria, and they teach the gospel there. In fact, one of the people who is uh, called to to help solve the problem with those widows uh, goes to an Ethiopian eunuch. He, He is, for two reasons, generally going to be excluded from the assembly of Israel. One is that uh, he's a foreigner, and the other is that he's a eunuch. And yet what we find is he has direct access to God through the church. Why? Because God's love is for all. And in each of these cases, 
it's still within the people of Israel. It's still within uh, the Jewish people who are receiving these blessings. But you're seeing all of these hints. It's something bigger going to happen. We're about to get to Acts chapter 10, where you see ground is broken into a whole new world. We see the gospel go to someone who is an uncircumcised Gentile. And this uncircumcised Gentile, he is someone who is a godly man. He's someone who loves God. He's someone who the Jewish people have good respect for. He's a centurion, and he has uh, given alms, and he has been very generous. What you'll see after him is the floodgates begin to pour open, and people who are even like just straight pagans who have nothing to do with Judaism at all end up hearing this gospel through Paul's missionary journeys as the gospel goes global. The disciples are sent, and they're sent to people unlike themselves. Uh, we're going to see how that happens here uh, with, a, with a brief study of Acts chapter 10 this morning. Before we get to Acts chapter 10, uh, I want to look at a couple of passages with you. Um, before you turn to Acts 9, even though that's on there first, turn with me to Luke chapter 5. I want to notice something that I think is really, really important for understanding what's going on in Acts. In Luke chapter 5, and again, I've said this over and over again, but in case you haven't been here in earlier weeks or you weren't paying attention in earlier weeks or you're a visitor, Luke and Acts should be read together. The things that you see happening in Luke uh, come to fulfillment in Acts. The themes in Luke continue on into Acts. The hints in Luke come, uh, you know, you, you find them uh, come to reality in Acts. They are volume one and volume two of the same work, written by the same guy to the same people or to the same guy. Uh, so you should, you should think of Luke and Acts together. It'll help you in your study if you do that. And in Luke, we have a number of stories like this, but I just chose this one. Uh, I think it, it'll make the point well. Luke chapter 5, verses 24 and 25. You have Jesus. Uh, the crowds have become so numerous that it's hard to get to them. And you have some friends who have a friend who is paralyzed. And it's really hard for them to get them through the crowd. So they end up lowering him through a roof. They're trying to do whatever they can to get him to go and see Jesus. And uh, when that finally happens, Jesus forgives the man's sins gets accused of blasphemy, but then shows that he's not actually being blasphemous. He can forgive sins, and he proves it with a physical demonstration of his divine power. When you look at uh, Luke chapter 5 and verse 24, Jesus says, But so that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic, I say to you, get up, pick up your stretcher, and go home. Immediately he got up before them picked up what he had been lying on, and went home glorifying God, and they were all struck with astonishment and began glorifying God. Jesus is able to speak to a paralytic, thus showing that he can forgive sins, but he also can heal a man who has been paralyzed. He can stand up, he can carry his own bed, he can walk home, and everyone glorifies God because of this. All right, look a little bit further in Luke. Look at Luke chapter 8. Luke chapter 8 and verse uh, 52, there is a man who's a synagogue ruler. His uh, daughter has died, or she is sick, and then eventually she dies. And um, Jesus is, uh, is supposed to go heal her, but uh, basically once she dies, it seems as though hope is going to be lost. But when you look at Luke chapter 8 and verse 52... The mourners are there, and uh, verse, uh, look at verse 51 first. He went into the house. He did not allow anyone to enter with him except P 
Peter and John and James and the girl's father and mother. So he doesn't let anyone enter. He goes into the house. Uh, he has this, this core group with him. Verse 52 says, And they were all weeping and lamenting for her. But he said, Stop weeping, for she has not died. She is asleep. Uh, in our Bible class this morning, we talked about the raising of Lazarus. And Jesus says something similar there, that uh, Lazarus is asleep and he goes that he will wake him. Well, here Jesus is going to make that same point. And uh, again, people are going to misunderstand him. Here, here's what the mourners do in verse 53. But they began laughing at him, knowing that she had died. They don't get that in Christ, death is only sleep. Because sleep is something you wake from. And in Christ, death is something you wake from. Uh, verse 54, he, however, took the child by the hand and called, saying, Child, arise. So he has everyone leave the house. He goes to this dead uh, female. He grabs the dead female by the hand, and he says, Arise. And look what happens in verse 55. And her spirit returned, and she got up immediately, and he gave orders uh, for something to be given her to eat, and her parents were amazed. Okay, so some incredible things happen here, but we, I've tried to note a couple of the, uh, the instance, the things that I want you to remember. Getting everyone out of the house, person's dead, it's a girl who's died, he's going to raise her from the dead, uh, he grabs her by the hand, he says, arise. The reason I'm pointing all of these things out uh, in Luke is because one of the major ideas that you should recognize when you get to Acts is that the church's mission is the continuation of Jesus's mission. Jesus doesn't stop working when he ascends to the Father. Jesus continues to work on earth, and his ministry continues very much on earth. And it continues through the lifeblood of the church. It continues through the actions of the church. The church is sent to continue to be Christ on this earth. By the way, that mission has not yet stopped. We are still called to be Christ on this earth. People should be able to see Christ because his body is still here. We are called to be the body of Christ. And so when you get to Acts chapter 9, I want to read a passage with you. Acts chapter 9 and verse 32. This is a really good introduction to what happens in Acts chapter 10. Acts chapter 9 and verse 32 says, Now as Peter was traveling through all those regions, he came down also to the saints who lived at Lydda, and he found a man named Aeneas, who had been bedridden eight years, for he was paralyzed. So just like Jesus met a man who was paralyzed, Peter meets a man who is paralyzed. And uh, verse 34, Peter said to him, and this is a fascinating thing to say, Aeneas, Jesus Christ heals you. Get up and make up your bed. And immediately he got up. Who did the healing right there? According to Peter. Jesus isn't even around, is he? Isn't Jesus up in heaven at the right hand of the Father? How is it that Peter can say, Jesus Christ heals you? Or, by the way, you can see that in other passages also, the same type of thing. Like when Paul is confronted about persecuting the church, Jesus says, Paul, why are you persecuting me? Jesus, in his connection to the church, is very, very profound. To mistreat the church is to mistreat Jesus. But for the church to go out and serve in the world around them is for Jesus to go out and to serve. When Peter says, Jesus Christ heals you, he's saying that what I'm doing, I'm doing in the name of Jesus. And actually, it's, 
It's like Jesus is the one who's still here and working and doing these things. So Jesus is still changing the world today. Jesus is still uh, serving. Jesus is still washing feet when the church washes feet. Jesus is still evangelizing when the church evangelizes. Jesus is still knocking down walls of hatred and prejudice when the church knocks down walls of hatred and prejudice. Jesus is still making an impact even today. And Peter's words, I think, are a profound uh, example of that. The, the ministry of Jesus continues on in the life of the church. And so uh, the man, you know, he gets up, he makes up his bed, and he's immediately healed. Just like what Jesus did, Peter's able to do the same thing. Then Peter continues, uh, look at verse uh, 36. It says, Now in Joppa there was a disciple named Tabitha, uh, which translated uh, is called Dorcas, and this woman was abounding with deeds of kindness and charity, which she continually did. And it happened at the time that she fell sick and died. And when they had washed her body, they laid it in an upper room. Now Lida was near Joppa. And the disciples, having heard that Peter was there, sent two men to him, imploring him, Do not delay in coming to us. So Peter arose and went with them. And when he arrived, they brought him into the upper room. And all the widows stood beside him, weeping and showing all the tunics and garments that Dorcas used to make while she was with them. And Peter sent them all out and knelt down and prayed. So here we have a girl. Uh, she dies. Peter goes into the room. People are in there weeping and lamenting. He sends them all out. That kind of sounds familiar, by the way. I wonder if Peter picked some of these things up somewhere before. Um, he sends them all out. He says in verse 40, uh, Peter sent them all out, and turning to the body, he said, Tabitha, arise. Jesus said, little girl, arise. But you have like the same words being used right there. And she opened her eyes, and when she saw Peter, she sat up, and he gave her his hand. Remember, Jesus took her by the hand uh, and raised her up. And calling the saints and widows, he presented her alive, and it became known all over Joppa, and many believed in the Lord. And Peter stayed many days in Joppa with a tanner named Simon. So here's two points I want us to take as we get to Acts chapter 10. The first is that the call of Peter is actually still the call of Jesus. The ministry of Peter is a continuation of the ministry of Jesus. What you see the church doing is what Jesus is, has been doing, uh, which is one of the reasons, by the way, that the church shouldn't engage in some of these sinful things that detract from the ministry of Jesus. We have a pretty serious calling. We're supposed to continue to be Jesus, in a sense, in the world around us, to be his body we should take that seriously. Um, we shouldn't dishonor Jesus by the things that we do. But secondly, and this might seem like a minor point, but it's a really good introduction to the next story. Peter is in Joppa. That city matters. Peter is in Joppa when we get to Acts chapter 10. So, who is Peter? Uh, if you remember in uh, Matthew chapter 16, we find out a little interesting thing about Peter's family. Uh, when Peter says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God, Jesus says to Peter, and you are uh, Peter, and upon the earth, said, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my father who is in heaven, uh, and upon this rock I will build my church. But notice when he says, blessed are you, Simon Barjona. Um, bar is an Aramaic word meaning son, and Jonah is who Peter is the son of. Son of Jonah. It's interesting. Uh, think of Peter as the son of Jonah. 
And then think of the book of Jonah for just a moment. Uh, what does Jonah and Peter, what do they have in common with one another? Well, I think a couple of things. One, the family name. You know, you could, you could say that's an easy one. Um, but here's another one. They're both reluctant prophets. Remember, Jonah was sent to Nineveh to preach a message of forgiveness and the salvation of God to the people there, to preach repentance to the people of, of, of Nineveh. Um, who were the Ninevites? They were Gentiles. You know what's going to happen in Acts chapter 10? Peter is going to be given a very similar mission. He is going to be given a commission or a call to go to a Gentile named Cornelius and to preach the gospel to him. A message of God's saving forgiveness, a message of repentance, a message of salvation to a Gentile. And they are both reluctant prophets. Uh, what you find is that Jonah does not want to go. And it's not because of fear. In fact, he's fine with dying. He tries to die a couple of times in the story. Something greater than death is keeping him from wanting to go to Nineveh. And it's hatred. He hates the people from Nineveh. He hates those Gentiles. He does not want them to be saved. He'd rather you throw him over a boat and have him die in the waters than go and preach to those people. In fact, after he does preach to them with this sermon that says, in 40 days, Nineveh will be destroyed. That's like all it records him saying. It's the shortest prophetic message in the Bible. He says those words, and the people by the droves repent. I mean, mass numbers of people from the king all the way to the poorest people, all the way to the animals. They put on sackcloth and they, they cover themselves in ashes and they all change and they all proclaim this fast throughout the city. It's like the greatest repentance you've ever seen in your whole wide uh, like the whole your whole life. Jonah's little sermon thing, I guess you can call it that, brings about this repentance. And he's so mad about it that he goes up on a hill and he just hopes God destroys them and he tells God to take my own life because to die is to better than live and see these people forgiven. I have news for you. I've said it before. I'll say it again. If you have a preacher who is told to go preach to you, and instead he runs away the other way because he does not want to do it. And then he ends up saying, throw me overboard, I'd rather die than go do it. And then he gets swallowed by a fish and vomited back on the sea and sent back, and so finally he reluctantly goes, he preaches a terrible sermon. When people come forward, when people repent, he gets so mad and says, I'd rather die than see these people repent. You have a bad preacher. <laughs> Jonah is not the peak example of what a prophet is supposed to be in Israel. He does not want them to repent before he preaches. He's mad when they repent after he preaches. He does not want these people to be saved from beginning to end. In fact, even at the very end of Jonah, he's like, he again tells God to, to kill him. He doesn't want to live anymore. And uh, God doesn't kill him, but God does ask him a question. He's like, Jonah, am I not allowed to care for these people? Like, I created these people. There's 120,000. They don't know they're right and they're left, even their animals. Am I not allowed to care about them? And that's the question that Jonah ends with. And that's the question that Peter has to answer when he's given this call. In fact, he's given this divine commission, much like Jonah, and he's told three times, actually, to go uh, and do this. And every time, Peter is reluctant to do it. In fact, there is uh, this, this vision he has where this unclean food comes down before him. And he's told, rise, Peter, kill and eat. And Peter says, absolutely not. I've never eaten anything unclean. I couldn't do this. And he's told something profound in uh, Acts chapter 10 in verse uh, 15. What God has cleansed, do not consider unholy. That's kind of important. Uh, you know, if we're, we're 
Christians and Gentiles, and I doubt too many of us spend a lot of time thinking about the, the Levitical prohibition against unclean foods. Um, why is that? I don't think it's because God says, all right, fine, eat unclean food. What do I care? I think it's rather because God has cleansed all foods. It's not like it's okay to eat unclean food now. It's that God has cleansed the foods. There's more that you can eat than you used to could. Uh, and I think that point is going to be really important when you consider the way God wants us to view people. We should not view people around us, no matter where they come from, what they look like, or what we think they've done, or that, as the unclean people that should be refused the grace of God. If we're going to think that way, then we're going to have to put ourselves into that same category as the unclean people who should be refused the grace of God. But the point of Acts 10 and the grand scheme of this whole book of Acts is that you're not going to find unclean people who should be rejected uh, outright from the grace of God. Even Gentiles, even people who are outside of the family, God still loves and longs for. And so they're both reluctant prophets because they've both been given a divine commission that they don't want to go on, and they both have a decision to make in Joppa. Remember I told you Joppa was important? You know where Jonah is when he gets on that boat and tries to go the other direction? He goes to Joppa. He goes to Joppa, and he could either turn and go to Nineveh, or he goes to Joppa, and he could get on a boat and go the other way and try to go to Tarshish, which is like as far away as you could possibly imagine from the people of Nineveh. And Jonah makes the wrong decision. Here Peter finds himself in Joppa. He can either go to the Gentiles or he can go his other way. He has three times rejected, or two times up to this point, rejected the divine call. And it happens again. What's he going to do? And what you'll see is that Peter ultimately makes the right decision. Peter goes and preaches to the Gentiles. Uh, Jonah reluctantly does. Peter does it uh, out of obedience. But what happens is that God's salvation in both stories falls upon Gentiles. God saves Gentiles in both stories. In one of them, Jonah gets really, really mad, but the story of Peter goes quite differently. Peter ends up going and defending the Gentiles to the church in Jerusalem uh, and in the next chapter. And then in Acts 15, there's this whole big conference about it where he remembers this moment and remembers that God's love is not confined by borders but God loves all. Um, if we're going to continue the mission of Jesus, we have to adopt that same mindset. As Peter's preaching, something profound happens. Uh, if you look at Acts chapter 10 and verse 44, it says, While Peter was still speaking these words, the Holy Spirit fell on all those who were listening to the message. All the circumcised believers who came with Peter were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out on Gentiles also. I mean, this, I, you can read Joel too, where it says, I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. I guess it should have prepared people. Peter actually quoted those words in Acts chapter 2, but still seeing it happen is just a mind-blowing experience. They are amazed that it's actually right before them, an uncircumcised Gentile with the Holy Spirit of God falling upon him. And you know what he does? Verse 46, for they were hearing them speaking with tongues and exalting God. That's what happened in Acts chapter 2. It's happening again. 
And it's happening in such a way that there's no doubt about it. God's Holy Spirit is upon these people. And like the idea of speaking in tongues is a way of saying even languages don't separate or divide the kingdom of God anymore. It's like in the Tower of Babel story, languages became this barrier. But in the kingdom of God, the barrier is removed. The Holy Spirit falling upon someone is evidence of the removal of that barrier. And Peter says, this is his conclusion in verse 47. Surely no one can refuse water for these to be baptized who have received the Holy Spirit just as we did, can he? And he ordered them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ, and they asked him to stay on for a few days. When he sees the presence of God fall upon even Gentiles, he knows, I cannot forbid salvation to these people. I cannot forbid water to these people. Who can forbid the baptism? No one can. God is now treating them the way that he is treating us. And he commands them right then to go be baptized. And Cornelius does. And the church goes global. The church reaches farther than had previously been seen or expected. In fact, this continues on. When you read Acts 11, Peter defends the Gentiles uncircumcised joining the faith because of the grace of God that he experienced here in Acts chapter 10. In Acts chapter 15, there's big debates about it. What should the Gentiles have to do? Should they have to be circumcised? And Peter's like, I'll tell you what happened with Cornelius. He wasn't, and he didn't submit to the law of Moses. And yet God still allowed his Holy Spirit to fall upon him. Why? Because the barriers that we have built, God is removing in Jesus Christ. And if we're going to continue the mission of Jesus Christ, we cannot set up new barriers. Whether you're talking about our nation's barriers or whether you're talking about barriers of prejudice or whether you're talking about racism or whether you're talking about all the different walls that we have a tendency to build up or at least find ourselves uh, falling trapped to, they have to be torn down, each and every one of them, because the gospel cannot be bound. The gospel goes global. That's the story of the book of Acts, and it's a hard story for people to grasp. Peter, even though he's the one who does this, still struggles with this. Uh, in Galatians 2, while he doesn't deny the salvation of Gentiles, he still finds himself around certain Jews not wanting to eat with them, still trying to keep up little barriers and little division. And what you'll find is that Paul says, no, you're not even getting the gospel right if you're not eating with Gentiles, because it matters. It matters that we demonstrate to the whole world the unity that we have in Christ. Be very, very careful before you allow anything to cause you to cause division or barriers in the body of Christ. That's not something we should do lightly. It's not something we should do easily. The message of the gospel is actually quite the opposite. So here's the challenge as we bring our lesson to a close. Make sharing your faith a more natural part of your life. If it feels very unnatural to do so, that makes sense. Uh, we, we don't often uh, bring up some of the most intimate personal matters of our life with other people. Uh, I get that. But it also is evidence that perhaps we're not doing what we've been called to do. Uh, sharing our faith should be a part of our life. It should be a part of our journey. It should be a part of who we are if we are continuing to be the ministry of Jesus on earth today. You can do so by acting locally with people you already know, uh, whether it be neighbors, coworkers. You can take simple steps like inviting them to church, inviting them to your home for dinner and maybe bring up spiritual things while you're there. You can start in ways that might be a little bit easier than simply saying, 
uh, you know, I'm going to have a Bible study with you right now. You can do that, by the way, also, though. Uh, and if you find yourself in a situation where you want to have a Bible study with someone and you want some help, I'll, I'd, I'd be happy to help. And I'm pretty sure there's a good number of people here who have done that type of thing before who you could talk to. They'd be happy to help you. Um, you can start by acting locally. I also want to mention you can act globally right where you are. Uh, through WEI, uh, the World English Institute, we have worldwide evangelism right at our fingertips. You can teach the gospel around the world to people who are already signed up trying to learn English and ready to open up their Bible to do so. You can become a teacher of the Word of God. You can evangelize globally. And the opportunity is yours. If you have more questions about that, I'm not going to go into tremendous detail right now, uh, but to Tom Langley, who's sitting right there in a blue shirt, uh, you can talk to him about it, and you have opportunities right here where you are to follow the path of Peter, to make the right decision in Joppa, and to bring the gospel to those around the world. You can do so, and we can help you. If there's anyone here who wants to obey the gospel yourself, the opportunity is yours. You can name Jesus as Lord of your life, have your sins washed away in baptism, and commit to him for this point forward. And if you have the need to do so, please let it be known. You can sit on the front row or meet with one of our elders in the library in the back while we stand and as we sing.